When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it's an interesting question. 20 years ago, if you'd asked someone what's a code, they would have drawn a little pyramid. And at the top, it would have said code of conduct. And that's the highest level, the most abstract description of who we are and what we do. And then under that would have been policies and under that would have been procedures. And that makes it still true. It's descriptively correct. It was Scott Schneider from Treliant. In this episode, Scott and I take a deep dive and even geek out into codes of conduct. We take a look at the beginnings of codes some 20 years ago, how they've evolved, and where code training and codes of conduct will be headed down the road. It's a fascinating podcast on a topic that, although foundational to compliance programs, really doesn't get the play that I think it needs. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And as everyone knows, I have two criteria for a successful podcast. Number one, did I learn anything? And number two, how much fun did I have? We're going to win on both today because I'm talking with Scott Schneider and we're going to talk about codes of conduct. If you're a code geek, uh, this is Nirvana for you. If you're not, listen anyway because you're going to learn a whole lot. So, we got a high bar set, Scott. Uh, <laughs> I totally have anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me for this podcast. I've really been looking forward to it. I have been too. Scott, could you tell us your professional background? Uh, I started out a million years ago as an attorney at a large Los Angeles law firm and practiced for 10 years. And about the time I decided I didn't want to be an attorney, uh, the, the online compliance uh, world was opening up. The internet was just launching, and so I shifted from practicing law to working in ethics and compliance. And in the last many years, I have uh, helped companies roll out uh, compliance training solutions, created uh, compliance training solutions, and currently I'm the head of content at Treliant, so I have overall responsibility for the content that goes into our training solutions. So let's start with uh, Treliant and Treliant's Code of Conduct's Conduct products. Uh, what does Treliant provide to its clients and why in the format that it currently exists? Well, you know, we're trying to think about training and, and compliance and culture holistically. So we certainly have a code of conduct training course. It's modular and, and offers a lot of features, um, but that's nested within this larger offering, which is uh, a full library of um, what I think of a sort of culture and compliance training solutions. So things like bribery or money laundering and all that, but also things like diversity and respect um, and cultural competency and those sorts of issues. So uh, we have the, the, the training course, we have this broader offering, and then we also have shorter um, format offerings. We call them sparks or they're intended to spark a conversation. So hopefully we're able to support people across the spectrum of what they need. Scott, the Department of Justice tells us the code of conduct is a foundational document for any corporate compliance program. And I would argue for a broader uh, corporate culture. Uh, but I wanted to uh, turn that a little bit and ask you, why is training on a code of conduct so important? You know, for me, the code training is the starting point. 
I mean, it, it, the most important message, well, code training often includes subject matter um, content. So it tells you what bribery is or what money laundering is or what harassment is. But more importantly, I think it sends the message that the company stands for something. Um, and so it, it sort of lays the table for everything else. Why are we getting longer training on certain topics? Because the company cares about it. The company stands for something. How do I make good decisions? Well, it's easier to make a good decision if you know what your company stands for. So uh, code training to me is the start of everything. It helps employees understand why there are policies, why there's training, why all this fuss about doing the right thing. The uh, As I mentioned, the Department of Justice has made clear what they think of the Code of Conduct and uh, why they view it as a foundational document. But really from your non-government practitioner role that you've had both uh, as counsel and now with client, why should a company have a Code of Conduct? You know, it's an interesting question. 20 years ago, if you'd asked someone, what's a code, they would have drawn a little pyramid. And at the top, it would have said code of conduct. And that's the highest level, the most abstract description of who we are and what we do. And then under that would have been policies and under that would have been procedures. And that makes it still true. It's descriptively correct. Um, but I think about codes a little differently these days. I think about it in terms of there are two worlds. There's the practical world, legal obligations, uh, self-imposed policy obligations. What does the company say it's going to do? And then um, sort of business operations, like what do you actually have to do? So you've got the practical world there, and then you've got this sort of aspirational world. Like what does the company stand for? How do we, how do, we do business? What are our values? And 20 years ago when you were drawing that pyramid, you would have said the aspirational world was nice but not that important. But today it's here and it's here to stay. It determines who you do business with, who works for you, um, who spends money with you. And so rather than thinking about code today as the top of a pyramid uh, in an org chart, I think about the code being important today because it is the bridge between those separate worlds, the practical on one hand and the aspirational on the other hand. And the code is the thing that helps you reconcile these very important but sometimes different. I've had the opportunity to visit with you on uh, some other podcasts, and you've consistently talked about a holistic approach that, uh, yes, there at one time there were 10 hallmarks to an effective compliance program. Now it's just the hallmarks. But you can't view those as single standalone items. You really have to look at them within an overall whole. And I've heard you talk about the three movers uh, really around uh, a compliance program of management and leadership and culture and training. How do you see the code or is the code a part of that holistic approach or do, is it really a standalone? Interesting question. Um... I, I think it's part of it. I think it's, the, in, in some ways, the, the least specific but the most important. Like When you roll out a training program, the most important indicator of success is whether it has the support of management because employees are rational, and when management says it's important, they listen. So I think management has to you know, play a big role in, in setting up what the company does and how they operate and all that stuff naturally, and that carries through then to training that talks about those same topics, who we are, what we do, how we do it. Code is also the opportunity, or in my mind, the, perhaps the first opportunity for an, a company to say these are what we believe in. Yes, they may be legal obligations, but we're also going to follow them. I understand there can be other either aspirational statements or other statements, perhaps ESG or, or some other focus, uh, but the code st still seems to be an important uh, item for multiple stakeholders, for shareholders, for employees, for customers, for third parties who do business with the company, 
and um, for uh, management itself. So do you see that uh, a code as being important or foundational even for a multitude of stakeholders and a way for a company to articulate who we are and what we stand for? Yeah, I mean, I, that, that was the, the original intention of, of codes, I think, and it, and it still holds true. It's not so much what they say, it's how they say it. Um, you know, increasingly, we want employees to be invested in the code. And so if you want them to go to the code, you have to give them a reason. Nobody wants to go to a list of rules. So you may have to have those rules, but you want to go, you want to put it in a way that's accessible. So explain it in terms of, for instance, values. We don't bribe because... Um, and that's not only it not only gives context, but it helps people then apply the code because it, the code may not address my specific issue. But if I understand the movers behind the rule they're talking about, then maybe I can understand what's going on in my situation. It, it is it, it does have to play double duty. It does absolutely have to be um, the goalkeeper says we do this or we we must do this or we mustn't do that. But I think how how it goes about doing that determines in a large way how successful it is. Because it should be something that's for all the stakeholders, not just the lawyers and the, the litigators in the, in the room. In my corporate life, I worked in the energy industry and uh, worked for a large multinational. And I was incredibly proud when the CFO of the business unit I was assigned to in a routine meeting one once said, you know, that would violate our code and we're just not going to do that. My first reaction was, wow, somebody actually listened to the training. But two, it also made me realize it was giving him a real anchor that he felt the company would stand behind him if he cited to a foundational document uh, as, a, as a reason for a business decision. So can the code also be used uh, in that context in your experience? Oh, sure. I, you know, I, I think it depends on where the company is in the continuum. Um, I think code can... The, the relationship between code and culture is sort of nuanced. If you've got a really positive culture, then absolutely the code becomes an anchor that keeps you moving in the right direction. If you aren't quite there, but you're working on culture, you take it seriously, then the code can be your guidepost, you know, that North Star that tells you where you're headed. Um, and then the same is true that if you, you have a toxic culture, the code isn't going to do a lot to help you at times. Um, Enron famously had a 64-page code of conduct. And uh, one of the commentators after everything blew up said, in retrospect, reading the code is like reading a, a novel of fiction. So it, it all depends. It, it serves lots of functions. Um, and I also think, you know, when you tell that story, the code is something that we talk about in code training or you talk about at the, a meeting once a year. One of the things your a colleague did was he said the words. You know, there's, there's power in that. If managers would link decisions to what's in our code, even if just in passing, they would send the message that the code is important, it guides us, and there are some things I will or won't do based on what the code says, rather than having a situation which happens too often, which is the code is something that they trot out once a year. You sign that you read it even though you didn't. You sign that you follow it even though you don't know how. I would even give an example of uh, use uh, in the context of third parties as stakeholders for the following or in the following example. I was once negotiating a contract with a colleague from another major energy company, and there was some provision that was at issue. And he said, look, Tom, we can't agree to this because it violates our code of conduct. And when he said that to me, it made me realize he couldn't step over that line. He wouldn't step over that line. And we needed to modify our position so that we could not only come to a fair uh, contract, 
negotiation conclusion, but also satisfy a foundational document. So now that I say that example, it does make me realize it, it is both inward and, or it can be inward and outward facing. You know, and, and it's interesting. You, you it, it goes uh, without saying that it takes a little courage to do that sometimes. You know, I've worked in compliance and ethics companies for years and years, and I still have meetings where there are difficult subjects being discussed. And I start what I have to say by saying, in our training, we teach that we should, you know, endorse transparency, that we should show authenticity. And I feel like I have to say that because what's coming next is going to be difficult to say. And so just just saying, I'm following our values, I'm following, I listen to what you say, and I'm going to take that lead, um, can take uh, it takes some courage, but it can also be liberating in that sense, because you say so much when you say it's in our code and we can't, we can't violate it. Scott, one of the, uh, the things that intrigued me uh, to want to visit with you on this specific topic was you have seen the evolutions of codes uh, literally from the first decade in this century uh, up, up to today. And I've seen that same evolution uh, as well. But I was wondering if you could maybe uh, walk us through how codes were relatively short, and then they became very long. You cited Enron as a great example. Uh, but I've seen other 50-page-plus codes that, as a lawyer, thrilled me. But <laughs> for the rest of the company, I'm not sure how effective it was. And now we've, we've maybe uh, gone back to, to shorter codes. So how have you seen that evolve? Well, you know, I think the, the biggest indicator of change has been um, kind of a focus on and maybe a realization on who the audience is. You know, the, the first codes were written like they sounded like they were written by lawyers to cover the company's backside because they were written by lawyers to cover the company's backside. And now there, there's a real focus on who are we trying to reach. Um, earlier I said, if you want people to read your code, then give them a reason. Um, and so you see changes in language. You see the addition of frequently asked questions. You see a, tough, a discussion of values, all with the idea that if we're going to reach lawyers, it should sound lawyerly. If we're going to reach everybody else, it should sound like the, the way they sound. It should give them information and tools that they can use in their day-to-day -day life. And so the, 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 there's a huge difference if you, if you pull up a code from 20 years ago on the, on the web and you compare it to a code like, you know, Coca-Colas or Hershey's, uh, where they've really spent a lot of time and effort and branded their code and their, their values, it's like night and day. It's like Hollywood production versus me in my backyard with my iPhone. Areas that codes have covered uh, have also changed, uh, but I was wondering if you, uh, are there some key areas you think a, a code should cover? Uh, should it be the basic legal requirements uh, or some, uh, something else? I think you have to cover the basic legal requirements for sure. Uh, but one of the lessons you learn, and I'd be interested to hear your point of view, you know, if you if you try to be a good person and do the right thing, you will most of the time be okay. I mean, there are certainly specific things where you can get in trouble. But as you think about harassment, if you think about bribery, if you think about insider trading, like, you know, if you follow your basic instinct, you're probably going to be on the right path. And so while I do think you have to talk about the legal requirements and those risk areas that are addressed, certainly for the federal sentencing guidelines or the acquisition regulations or such, um, I do think you need to couch them in terms of you know, basic core values, uh, because those, at the end of the day, are going to be the things that at least start the employee on the right path to resolving the, the problem they're facing. We're going to have a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more from Scott Schneider on Code of Conduct.
In other podcasts, I've heard you talk about a more holistic risk management approach to compliance. Can that or should that be used when you design your code of conduct? Should you look at the risks your company face? Should you uh, survey, interview, have focus groups with employees? And or then when you're ready to actually put a code down in writing, should it just be the lawyer? Should it be the compliance professionals? Or should you utilize a wider variety of talent within your organization to not only get different viewpoints, but also to get a greater buy-in? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you think about it in terms of like a food company, you would never design a, a food product and say, well, our team thought it tasted good, so let's go launch it worldwide. Uh, but sometimes we do that with code. We, oh, you know, this committee thought it was a really good idea, what, and so you guys can accept it, won't you? Um, so I think you do have to look holistically. Um, part of it is about uh, should be about what the company's risk profile is and where are the areas where you think that the organization is at risk. But I think an important component is also finding out what your people think is important. Right? If you want them to, to be drawn to it and to use it and to think it's an important thing, then it's got to at least re, um, reflect what they think is important. And I think many companies would be surprised to find out how often what the company thinks is important and what the, the employees think are important, they kind of overlap, even if they're using different language. And does that, in your mind, tie back to overall culture of an organization? And I want to overlay that with the Department of Justice has made clear they're going to look at corporate culture. And could a code and the process to design a code be one one piece of evidence to present to a regulator if they come knocking this is the culture we're striving for. These are the building blocks of how we hope to get there, and we are moving in this direction, and here's the evidence of it. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to the approach you take. You know, Hemingway wrote a short story once, I think, where it ended, the story was it ended, the short story ended with this vision of a bird flying, a dove flying into the sun, and some reporter asked him, why did you use that image? And Hemingway said, well, how would you have done it? Um, and so you've got these practitioners who are out in companies, and sometimes they don't have tons of support. And so they, you, when you ask them, well, why does your code say that? They say, well, made sense to me. How would you have done it? Um, and so when you're putting together the code and you're thinking about it, I think you should think in terms of um, stakeholders and values and talking to employees and talking to leaders and all of that so that you have a story to tell. Not only will it put you in better stead if the DOJ comes knocking, but I think it will also put you on the right path to creating something that people care about. In terms of uh, the first part of last decade or the second decade of uh, this year, I began to see uh, codes that became interactive and they had hyperlinks and could take you to different areas. Uh, That, I think, gave some level of of additional engagement, but it also allowed additional resources to be put at the fingertips of employees as opposed to being a lawyer, a citation at the end, uh, go see <laughs> this or something else. Uh, how do you help a company think through the types of resources to provide in addition to the foundational coach? Can it be on a hyperlink? Should it be in a hyperlink? Or uh, should the code really stand alone uh, in a siloed position? Yeah, interesting question. I think um, I think you have to think about what you want to do. There are some folks who would choose those interactive codes of conduct and all of that stuff because it's the next big thing, right? It's, it's the convertible you wish you had. It's what everybody else is doing, but it may not make sense for your organization. 
Um, and I think you have to think about how you're using the code. If you're trying to drive people to your code and you want to make good on the, the promise that it will help you make good decisions, then I think it has to be something more than just a statement that we don't bribe, we don't launder money, we don't do whatever. Um, and so putting links in, I think, would be helpful. Um, but I think you also have to emphasize the human side which is there are people to help you because, you know, code of conduct training typically is modular. You have, for instance, you know, three, four, five minutes on each subject. You're not going to train, give someone a true and meaningful understanding of bribery law in four minutes of training. So the code can help them. It can start them off. It can point them to policies, but ultimately they're prob most people are going to be better served by having a conversation about it. So you're, you're always putting that line between wanting to empower them by giving them resources. But I think the message also has to be, we have folks who are here to help you. Scott, how would you help a company think through uh, the length of time between uh, reassessing or revisiting your code? The Department of Justice talks to us about risk assessments in the context of when your risks change, you need to assess the new risks or what have changed. I've heard other people say, if you haven't looked at your code in five years, it's time to do so now. Do you have a ballpark uh, that you would suggest companies revisit their code? You know, the, the code is supposed to be the highest level uh, description of how you operate. So it's probably not going to change dramatically year to year, but I think it's really important to look at it year to year. You may look at it and say, great, this is still doing what it needs to do. It's speaking in the terms it needs to. But I wouldn't want to go in front of any uh, stakeholder, let alone you know uh, a regulatory body, and explain that we don't we don't look at our code for another two years. You know, <laughs> we looked at it two years ago, and it's another three years. We'll take another look again. Um, so I think it has to be part of that that yearly analysis of not only the risk you're taking, but how do we do business? How are, is it still serving us? Um, and with that, I mean. Adopting a code is a big deal. It often is approved by the board. It has to go through senior management. There's a lot of work that goes with it. The fact that you revisit and you assess your code each year doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to change it each year, but it does send a message to everybody that the code is important and that we're watching. And when we exercise judgment, we will make changes that are appropriate rather than just saying, well, in three years, we'll see where we're at. Scott, uh, the same question about, uh, but rather focused on employee training on the code. How often should, in your opinion, an employee receive code training? Yeah, I think they should. I'm in the compliance training industry, so I, I freely admit my bias, but I think they should be trained every year. Um, but I think we also need to define training uh, a little more broadly. I mean, certainly we have these online compliance training courses that are modular and you can choose what you want the people to be trained on and all that stuff. But training, and that's important because it brings everybody, sort of levels the playing field, brings everybody up to speed. But training can also be um, empowering managers, giving them little kits so that they can talk to their teams about a, what the code is or a code topic in their weekly meeting once a quarter. It can be a message from the CEO. It can be a podcast like this from leaders in the organization. There are lots of ways that training can happen. Um, and I think whether it's a formal course or little bite-sized pieces or little reminders, part of what it does is elevate the visibility of the code so that people understand it matters. And that itself is as important, I think, as whatever substantive training goes on with it. Scott, looking down the road, do you see the code uh, as continuing to be a foundational document and really the training around that foundational document will uh, continue unabated? 
Well, I, <laughs> there will be no shortage of, of scandals and missteps. So I don't see the uh, the incentives for leaders to say, okay, we're going to relieve companies of the burden of uh, articulating what they, how they conduct business and what they stand for. But I think it will change. It will change a lot. And and I think what we'll see is is in some ways um, a movement to make the code practical. So instead of sitting at the top of that pyramid on some pedestal someplace, it'll be, if this is our code and this is what we stand for, then what do we do with it? How do we um, implement it? How do we get people to engage with it? So I think that part is changing. Um, the, the code as being something that a committee put together uh, was popular 10 or 15 years ago. Now it's going to be what people are going to be asking, what is what are you doing with your code? What, is, what, what does it mean in the real world? I think that's changing. So the code will be there, but I think we'll look at it in a different way. Well, Scott, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on any of the topics we touched on or uh, information on yourself or perhaps how to reach out to you. What would be the best way for them to do so? Sure. Happy to, to speak with anyone. Um, you can always reach us at our website, which is Um You can also reach out to me on, on uh, LinkedIn. So I'd be happy to, to respond to a message and spark a conversation. Well, Scott, I said uh, when we started this podcast, I had two goals. One was to uh, how much I learn, and two is how much fun I had. And I had uh, a great amount of learning and a great amount of fun. So thank you, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. I do too. Thanks very much. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Claire's got a ton of resources on her website, and we're going to link to all of those in the show notes. So check them out if you're interested in internal audit, data visualization, or any of the topics we've touched upon today. I hope you'll check out my latest podcast series, The Woody Report, which is a podcast with Karen Woody, well-known securities law professional and securities law professor. I hope you'll check out some of the other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're coming out with new podcasts literally a couple of times a month, so uh, check that out. In addition to Karen's new podcast, I have another podcast entitled Taxman on the intersection of tax and compliance. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.